talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Willerskin inviting the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. It's the first post-pandemic May 2-4 weekend. No shoes, no shirt, and definitely no mask. It's what the 1960s must have felt like. Play safe, Hamilton. Here's Scott Thompson. It's Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Things always changing in the hammer. Restaurants, uh, man, it's hard to keep up. Uh, let's bring in Anish Sarvastava, owner of Unique Restaurant Group. He is with us now. Anish, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing great, Scott. How are you? I'm doing really good. So talk about your locations. you got the Powerhouse. you got B-Side Social. What am I missing? we got the Fuzz and Plucker, South Coat 53, and then in Burlington, uh, the Dickens and District Kitchen and Bar, and now the new one in, uh, in Hess Village called King George. This is pretty cool. Talk about this. Yeah, so, I mean, Hess, as you know, has quite the reputation uh, mm-hmm. with regards to, you know, a lot of clubs and a lot of young folks down there, but the area is really changing. Um, there's uh, several condo developments coming in. The residential, you know, population there is growing, as you know. And we felt it was a perfect time to open up uh, a little neighborhood pub. We're right on George Street, so right off of Hess, kind of in our own little corner there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with George, but you got Moody's and Amigos, and Electric yeah. Diner, so some more, you know, a combination of dining and nightlife type of places coming in. And there really isn't a, a traditional kind of old school pub there, and so we thought we would... Uh, we would do that. This is a great idea. And I'm old enough to remember when Hess Village was really the only thing that was happening in town. I mean, it was really where sort of the center was. And then as Hamilton progressed, you started to get all these other pockets and, you know, and sort of the attention went away from Hess. But that's changing. Yeah, for sure. I think it's, uh, you know, I think COVID had an impact as well because there was a bit of turnover in the area as far as, you know, the types of establishments that you have there. Um, but, you know, it had become very one-dimensional, and I, I think Hess was quite, it was hurting, uh, you know, a few years leading up to the, the pandemic versus its highs of about 15 years ago. Um, and I think this is the kind of variety that's going to bring people back where it's not just about uh, the, the clubbing. Obviously, uh, the hospitality industry just been nailed over the course of this uh, global pandemic. The last two and a half years for you and everybody else have just been have been hell. But it's interesting that here you are coming out of it and you're seeing opportunity. Yeah, there's quite a bit of opportunity out there. I think everybody has heard the the numbers as far as the number of uh, you know restaurants that were shut down or went out of business uh, over the pandemic. I don't, unfortunately, I don't think that's over yet. I think as the you know a lot of the government subsidies end, you're you're going to see a lot more um, uh, bankruptcies and things of that nature. But at the same time, there's a lot of empty space, and this is a perfect example where you know, the cost of us to get into this new location was, was minimal because it was an existing restaurant. Um, for those in Hamilton, it was the Lou Dogs that had been there for mm-hmm. over 10 years, I think. Um, and so all the infrastructure is there. There was equipment there. There was furniture there. You know, we did we did a, a small little reno to convert into a quaint little pub, and, and off we went. So uh, is this an opportunity? Do you see more chances for this? Or, you know, is it is it economy economies of scale here? Where, where do you see this going post-pandemic? I think you're going to see a bit of a balance. And the reason I say that is uh, the belief of most of us in the industry is that pre-pandemic, the market had become oversaturated with, with restaurants. There were just too many of them. 
Um, and now I think it's swung a bit back the other way where there's definitely some opportunities. And this is a good example. It's not that there's a shortage of, you know, bars or restaurants in House Village, but um, there's not a single, you know, real pub, um, old school mm-hmm. pub. Um, and I think you're going to see things like that where, you know, I can already look at different pockets of, of Hamilton and, and, and see opportunities for different types of uh, establishments potentially coming in. Um, and, it, you know, I think when it comes to when it comes down to it, landlords, uh, it's expensive for landlords to convert a restaurant space into something new. So if they can get a new restaurant client or uh, tenant in there, they're going to do that. Um, but not all will. And I've already seen a bunch of spaces that used to be, um, you know, restaurants that have now been repurposed. And then, of course, there's a lot of development going on. So there will be places that go away just as condos and things like that are built. You bring up an ex- an interesting point, Anish, with the residential, because I remember a bazillion years ago and, and when we were trying to get a grocery store downtown, you know, the key was we didn't have enough residential. But you see with the development that is coming, the, the, the development in the future, that, that is, that's going to change in that area. Yeah, I mean, right now, right behind us there on uh, Main, um, first occupancy of the condo building just started. Um, there's a, you know, that area, not only is there a lot of condos being built, there's another one where, uh, sales are just starting, I believe around this week. Um, there's about two or three sites, literally walking distance from, from Hess village where condos are going up. Um, you already have quite a bit of residential in the area, as you know. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that that's going to continue. And I think you're going to see, you know, our, our location on Augusta, uh, that you mentioned B-Side Social. Right across from there, there's two buildings that have been built on either side of the pheasant plucker. Uh, one is going to be a, a boutique hotel called Laundry Room, um, which I think opens towards the end of June, which is going to bring people into the area. And then on the other side, it's going to be the, a, um, a condo complex. Um, these are mid-rises, but they're built within the existing historical um, architecture and historical location. So you have kind of these mixed-use streets where you'll have uh, residents, hotels, and then, as you know, Augusta Street, restaurants and bars as well. So what do you think Hamilton will see post-pandemic as far as the hospitality and restaurant industry? You know, obviously you talked about a saturation point. Are you going to see now more niche, more mixture of different types? I think you will. I, I absolutely think you will. I think there's there. I mean, Hamilton was already on that trajectory pre-pandemic, yeah. right? I mean, it's it's uh, one, of the, one of the most booming spots and, you know, I, I don't know how far and wide, but definitely yeah. around here. It's, uh, you know, people are moving. Hamilton's developing. It's becoming... Uh, it's becoming quite the little city, right? Um, and I think that's going to continue to draw people um, uh, into Hamilton to to do different things and try different concepts. And uh, I think ultimately it will be great for the city uh, as we get more diverse and eclectic in our offerings. All right, so give us the address, location, name again. It's the King George Pub, 116 George Street in Hess Village, and uh, hope to see you there. All right, King George Pub, 116, ha- or 116 George sure. in Hess Village. Anish Sevastova with his owner of Unique Restaurant uh, Group. Anish, good luck with this moving forward. Sounds like a great idea. Thanks, Scott. Long weekend, lots of stuff heading, uh, lots of stuff opening up, lots of stuff starting for the summer season, uh, including the, low, uh, the local racing schedule, as we've been chatting about uh, throughout the course of the week, and uh, Hamilton's own Flamborough Speedway uh, starting up as well, and a big year for them, celebrating 50 years. To talk more about all of this, Gary Culling is with us, track announcer with Flamborough Speedway, and he's with us now. Gary, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, Scott, I'm doing great. Having a great day. Nice Friday. So uh, the 50-year, it's, it's hard to believe Flamborough's been around for 50 years. Tell us a little bit about the history of this place and what you're doing to celebrate your 50th year. 
Well, uh, John and Frank Caselli, the Caselli family, have owned Flambeau Speedway for 50 years. They bought it. They bought it back in 1972 off of the original owner who had it for about 10 years. And uh, if it was me, I don't think I'd own a racetrack for 50 years, but these guys keep sticking at it. And uh, we're doing some great, great events this year. We're going to celebrate our fans. We want to celebrate the drivers that used to race at the track and do some special things for them. So we've got a lot of cool uh, races lined up. Uh, one of our big events that we have this year is September 4th. It's the Pot of Gold 300, and it's $50,000 to win. So where are these guys and girls coming from that are racing and, and do this circuit? Uh, we got them coming from all over Ontario. Uh, we don't have too many come up from the U.S. at all, but um, a lot of pro late model drivers from Ontario. We have uh, Jared Fitzpatrick from Cambridge area, um, Billy Schwarzenberg from the Guelph area. Uh, we've got guys coming from London and Delaware Speedway that will come down on a Saturday. Most of our guys are from the Milton, uh, Mississauga, Hamilton, Burlington, Oakville kind of area, Georgetown Guelph, that come out to uh, play at Flambeau Speedway on a Saturday night. So, obviously, uh, the current ownership having it for 50 years, tough times during COVID-19. How did you stick it out? Ah, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I spent a lot of time. Um, I'm a school teacher by trade, and um, it's what I love to do. But I spent a lot of time in my off hours working with the current government and other racetracks to get us going. And we, we actually were able to stay open. Um, with very limited uh, fan participation. But uh, once we got rolling again last year, we just decided that this year is the big year and we, we want to really definitely uh, show our fans what we've got to uh, show to the people. And, um, you know, we were lucky enough to have a couple of NASCAR Pinties races last year and the year before at Flamborough, which really put us back on the map again. That's great that uh, that worked out for you during the uh, pandemic. Yeah, it was great. I, I've come from that uh, kind of racing. I worked in that uh, the NASCAR Pinties for a few years back in the day, and I knew some people over there, and it was a good opportunity for us to get back in. I have uh, friends and family that work in NASCAR down in the U.S., and they were ecstatic to see it on NBC Sports. And uh, in the winter down there, a lot of people were saying, Flamborough Speedway still going? Like, really? It's <laughs> and we've actually had guys call from the U.S. and say, do you still have the Flamburger? Because I remember the Flamburger, and I like to tell you, I still have the Flamburger. <laughs> so, uh, any, you know, obviously, uh, with the Pitti series, you know, they were trying to keep their series going as well. Any chance of getting them back in the future? Uh, we tried this year. We, we, we offered our resort, our track up to them uh, if they were struggling to find anyone. They had commitments to make with their current um current tracks that they had agreements with before COVID. So we didn't want to step on anyone's toes and we just kind of stepped away. Um, but we, we were greatly appreciated that they came to see us and, and they put on races at our track and, and we wouldn't, uh, we would not host another one. You know what I mean? If they came to us and say, Hey, we need some help. Yeah. We would definitely step in, but uh, we understand their situation and they got to get to their regular tracks. That and Flamborough, and Flamborough is real short track racing. That's where locals come out, and, you know, it's just not the, the late model stocks and the feature shows. It's all the stuff below that. If people want to try this, you can get into it, can't you? Oh, 
Oh, for sure. We we have a bunch of great Enduros where you can get a uh, uh, four-cylinder car. You can come out, put a roll bar in it, come out and play with us. It's not too much money to get involved. Uh, you can start at a very decent rate. You know, a lot of a lot of people that start at Flamborough Speedway actually came through the Waterloo Regional Car Club, which actually races there every pretty much every Saturday morning at Flamborough Speedway. And you'll see those kids develop and come into the program on a Saturday night, so the pure stocks, the mini stocks, super talk stocks, ab- and then the pro late models. Talk about the karting aspect and, and what you are doing with that. Well, it, my kids have been my daughter's 21, and she's been racing with the Waterloo Regional Kart Club since she was seven. Uh, we host uh, the go-kart club, so based, it says Waterloo Regional Kart Club. That was their original name back when they were in the Waterloo area. They came to us approximately 10 or 11 years ago. They built a track in the infield. They come and race there every Saturday morning. So two weeks ago, uh, no, last week was their first week, and they had over 100, over 100 go-karters show up to race on a Saturday morning. Free to get in, come and watch them. You get to see little seven-year-old kids and their parents that used to race pro late models and super late models, and they got these little seven-year-old kids out there doing better than they ever did when they raced. It's really interesting how this continues on and, and new generations continue to jump onto this sport. Uh, it, it is amazing. Um, uh, like I said, I've been in it for a very long time. used to race myself at Flambeau Speedway and the Canadian Vintage Modifieds, which is another great program. But just at the go-karts, um, I do some announcing for them also and help them out. And uh, with my kids racing in there, just the kids that are coming through, there's like three or four generations of race car drivers at any given time at that racetrack walking around. Junior Hanley, who's well-known yeah. North America, comes there and hangs out on a Saturday night. He'll come over on Saturday and watch these little kids run around. It's, it's, uh, it's an amazing thing to see if you ever get a chance to come out on Saturday morning. That's hilarious. All right, so what do you got going this weekend, Gary? Well, this weekend we have the Ontario Sportsman Series. It's uh, planned for a 100-lap feature event with the Canadian Vintage Modified, the Super Stocks, the Mini Stocks, the Pure Stocks, and the Pro Force. We also are having uh, spectator drags. So the car you brought to the racetrack, you're going to get a chance to come on to the racetrack and win some of John and Frank's money. It's $100 for the winner. This is hilarious. So talk about this. How does, tell, talk about this, Gary. How does this work? <laughs> I was hoping you'd ask. So basically, if you have a street legal car, so say you come with Grandma's car, you borrowed it for the night, and she needs it to go back to church <laughs> the next day. Uh, you can get in there. You come up to us, or you, we'll tell you that you're going to do a spectator drag. You go to the pit side. You just drive in. Make sure you have a helmet. You come into the infield at intermission. And it's winner moves on, loser goes back to the back and into the grandstand, and the last person standing gets $100. That's hilarious. Oh, man. And that's what racing is all about, especially at the local level. Good for you guys. Oh, oh, for sure. And we've had guys come out with little school buses. We've had them come out with little four-cylinder cars. I actually have a replica Junior Hanley go-kart that I might try to get into the race next uh, tomorrow night and try and get on it. They normally black flag me and tell me to get out of the way because I can't win the money, but I always got to try to take a little extra when I can. Gary Culling with his track announcer for Flamborough Speedway, kicking things off this weekend, their 50th anniversary. Uh, check it out on Saturday and the karting on Saturday morning. Gary, good luck this year. Be well. Uh, thank you. You be well also. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, come on out to Flamborough. It's going to be amazing this year. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, I've been kind of holding off talking about this. And as much as I love Dr. Timothy Sly, uh, there was a time when we were talking to him almost like every other day and uh, about COVID-19. Now there's something else called monkeypox. Uh, hey, let's go into a long weekend and talk about this. Uh, but we should at least find out what it is all about. Dr. Timothy Sly is with us, epidemiologist, professor emeritus, School of Population Public Health with Toronto Metropolitan University and with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thank you. All right. So uh, how bad is this one? What it's about? Is it? Uh, why are we talking about it? Well, it certainly has scientists and epidemiologists concerned around the world because we've never quite seen a, a spread of this thing outside of the African continent, uh, certainly not in these numbers. But it's not something to be afraid of. Don't take your loved ones and run to the hills. This is nothing like COVID. This is not a, a disease that spread as the respiratory uh, disease is spread, like influenza and COVID. This is to spread through close contact. It's a deadly disease. The smallpox is a deadly disease. This seems to be much less than that. Usually, small monkeypox is about 10% case fatality rate. And this one, the British labs are beginning to say this is a strain they've seen before in West Africa, in Nigeria area, that's probably much less than that even. So, so uh, that's where we're at. And uh, we've I've heard uh, that even vaccinations you had had for maybe chickenpox, what have you, may help you in this over your time. No, chickenpox is a totally different virus altogether. This is a. Uh, you, you is there another this. vaccine that works for this yep. that we've already been using? Is what well, maybe I'm yeah, confusing the mine. The vaccine, the vaccine we've used in the past against smallpox. Oh, smallpox. Okay, sorry. Which, I'm getting which my is, animals mixed up here, my birds. <laughs> and here's another one coming along. The vaccine we use for smallpox is actually a, a fully replicating virus, but it's from cowpox. It's a, these are all orthopox viruses, but uh, any, anything in this area will, will have a, a good percentage of protection against this one. But it's not the kind of thing we're going to rush into get people vaccinated against. Let's just watch this because it's not the kind of thing that spreads as a pandemic spreads through respiratory uh, virus spread at all. What's an orthopox virus? It's that family of viruses. They're all DNA viruses as opposed to RNA viruses. They're larger they don't uh, mutate anywhere near as much as uh, as the RNA viruses, as we've seen with uh, influenza and uh, coronaviruses. Uh, they're a large, pretty large virus, but they uh, they they cause an onset in about 10 to 14 days, roughly. And you get a fever, and you get large sort of vesicles, large little blister-like spots, which eventually form a scab and drop off. But they are highly infectious if you're close to somebody. And uh, why the concern about it now, then? Well, just because it's a mystery. And science, we don't like mystery. At least it piques our curiosity. We want to find out where it came from originally. Almost certainly Africa. It's either Central and West Africa. But it's never really been seen other than the odd few cases outside. There was one incident in 2003 where some uh, rodents were actually imported, not sure if they were deliberate or accidental, into the United States. And they, they uh, infected uh, the, the prairie dogs there. Because this, this, this is, even though we call it monkeypox, the reservoir for this virus is actually wild rodents. And w- in relation to sexually, is this sexually transmitted? 
or can it be? It's, no, if you look at any of the medical texts, it's not medically trans sexually transmitted. However, there seems to be, we're always looking for little idiosyncrasies in epidemiology. What's the, what, how, how are these things grouped together, clustered together? Well, in this case, it's, most of the cases seem to be people who are either gay or bisexual or men who have sex with men. Mm -hmm. Now, this isn't a sexually transmitted disease, but you can imagine how perhaps at, at, at a group or a party or a spa or a, a resort or something like this, if you had some transmission going on uh, or at a conference or whatever, you can, you know, any, any gathering like that. And then after a few days, everybody goes back to their own towns or villages and uh, countries and continents. You can begin to see how that could spread. Remember that the early days of uh, what we now call HIV AIDS. Uh, was associated with some very strange spread, and it, it's the, everybody is vulnerable to it, but it just happens to be that uh, that it, the, the first few instances of spreading, if they're associated with a specific lifestyle or an event or a, or a moment in time or a you know some kind of a, a place, a location, that seems to get associated with that, and later on we see it's much wider. So I uh, only got about 30 seconds left. Advice for those who might be, who are hearing this news and going, oh, no, or it's COVID again. What are we doing? Advice for us who are hearing this news. Oh, for most, no, our listeners, don't even worry about it. Anybody in the gay, bisexual, MSM community, watch out for unusual signs and symptoms you've never seen before. If that's the case, uh, contact your physician. But other rest of us, just uh, sit back and worry. This is not going to be a, a pandemic spread. We, we're not going to be talking about this for the next six months, you and I, about it spreading like wildfire. No. <laughs> Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist, Professor Emeritus, School of Population, Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Have a great thank, weekend. Thank you, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Yesterday, about this time, we were breaking the news that uh, the government had made a decision on Huawei, and that is not to let the... Uh, the tech giant into Canada's infrastructure of the five uh, of the five G system, which of course the United States, uh, UK, and and the rest of our uh, allies, Five Eyes allies, uh, have have already done this a while ago. Uh, obviously, the Prime Minister being asked why it is happening now. The two Michaels were used for the longest uh, time as a reason for not uh, pushing back on this. However, as you know, the two Michaels have been uh, out for months now. Let's begin. Uh, let's begin. Let's bring in Abigail Beeman, Ottawa correspondent for Global News, and she is with us now. Abigail, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks for having me. So the Prime Minister questioned, along with uh, the industry minister, on why this is happening now. What, do, what reasons did they give for this decision, even uh, you know, although it's been a while since the two Michaels have been released? That's right, and, and really no clear reasons whatsoever. That's been the number one question politically, you know, both asked by journalists and asked by opposition. Uh, as you mentioned, the industry minister pushed on that in, in question period today. This is a decision that, as you also mentioned, came out late yesterday. So the first real opportunity for that grilling uh, by opposition members was today. No clear answer from the government. The line they have come up with to deal with this uh, is about how it's not a race. It's about doing it right. But that really doesn't answer things when our allies did this years ago, not months ago, years ago. And yes, there was the issue, uh, obviously, with the with the with the two Michaels, as, as you said, but that was resolved a number of months ago. So it's not really clear why now and, and why it took this long. 
It almost draws more attention to it by doing it now, because that's the first question that comes to mind. What about fallout? Uh, we'll get to fallout from China in a second, but what about reaction from the Canadian industry? Because we understand they've kind of made moves ahead of the government on that, but yet on the other hand, there's still money that they've invested. That Are, are they going to be looking for compensation for stuff they've already done, and now they have to pull out? Yeah, it's, a, it's an important question, and uh, I think that those, things will be resolved in, in time ahead or that we'll get some answers to that uh, in, in time ahead. But it's important to point out, and this is to the chagrin of some uh, some China watchers who wanted harder action on this file, that, that it will be a matter of years uh, until these moves have to be made, right? So not until uh, 2024, uh, in some cases, d- does this gear or equipment need to be removed. So those who are concerned about potential security risks uh, are, are saying that, you know, Canada is still left exposed any potential issues for some time into the future. So the government says they were sort of waiting to, to do it right. It wasn't a race. And yet now we're taking our time to actually do it. Is that accurate? I think that would be a fairly fair assessment of how it's going. I mean, the, you can't just turn off, turn things off overnight, right? Yeah. And these companies didn't have mm-hmm. um, didn't have clear guidance. They, everybody knew that this decision was coming, and you saw uh, the major players decide to go with uh, Ericsson and to go with uh, you know another company for this reason because there was a lack of clarity in the industry and it was difficult to get caught in this situation. Uh, but it does seem that there is there is this buffer of time because it's not you know so easy to just. Uh, turn off the taps overnight. And what about China? What's the fallout from them again? We're the last ones to do this. Can they be surprised? Right, and that's really what I've been focusing on for my uh, coverage for Global National tonight. I've been speaking with a, a whole bunch of China experts and watchers and analysts and looking at the reaction coming out of Beijing and also uh, here out of the embassy, the Chinese embassy in Ottawa. So the statement out of the embassy was the strongest. They are accusing Canada of using a so-called security concern, that's the embassy's words, uh, as really a, just a cover for political manipulation. And they say that they will be watching carefully both the uh, foreign um, foreign department in Beijing and, and the embassy that they will be analyzing or assessing the situation carefully uh, and, and figuring out what to do next. So as I said, I've spoken with quite a few experts on this topic and everybody's really divided in terms of if China will retaliate, how China will retaliate, what type of retaliation we're talking about, what that means for Canadians who have business interests uh, in China or or personal interests in China or are visiting China, what does this mean there? There is still uh, at least one Canadian with a high-profile case in China. That's Robert Schellenberg, uh, mm. who has been detained since 2014, but has been facing uh, the death sentence. Um, and, and we haven't had an update on his case in, in quite some time. Uh, but there are a whole bunch of questions around that, around, you know, we asked Global Affairs uh, whether there's plans to to change the travel advisory to China. Currently, uh, Canadians are told to exercise a high degree of caution. Uh, we didn't really get a clear answer there, just that they that they are monitoring it. But obviously, all of these areas, um, arrests, business ties to China, the potential of blocking exports, those are things that everybody is watching. The Prime Minister sort of signaled in his comments today uh, at a news conference that Canada is prepared for some type of retaliation, saying that he acknowledged that this may well present a challenge at the World Trade Organization. Uh, So the government, you know, is is obviously uh, staying on top of this, but exactly how China will choose to act remains to be seen.
Uh, we remember the story of the two Michaels had us gripped for, uh, my goodness, I can't remember how long they were actually detained. Uh, and then something happened, and boom, they're out. And then we right. haven't heard from them since. Are you surprised we haven't heard from them, the two Michaels? Uh, I, I'm not sure about that. I think it takes, you know, quite some time to to readjust. I remember yeah. we did hear from Michael Kovrig. Um, shortly after he returned, there was that social media post about him getting his COVID vaccination and how he was grateful uh, for that. There was that. And then we did have, you know, a brief interview uh, with him right after he returned home. I, I imagine that, well, I can't imagine, I, I haven't been in a Chinese prison, but I imagine mm. that the amount of reintegration back into um, life in Canada is is uh, quite a road. And so, I, of course, I think many people would love uh, an update and would love to hear how, how they're doing. Uh, but I'm not sure if I could say that I'm surprised by that. Abigail Beeman with his Ottawa correspondent for Global News talking about the fallout with Huawei's 5G banning in Canada and what China or how they feel about it. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Abigail, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thanks for having me. You too. May 2-4 weekend. First one we've had in a couple of years, man, where it's like we can actually get out and do something, uh, which is great to see. May 2-4 weekend and, um, yeah, here and down. No, don't be lighting off the fireworks yet, Tom. No, 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 no. Oh, you're going to get us in trouble. You're going to have the bylaw people banging on the door. Let me in. I want to see that Tom McKay, man. He's got a... He's got a ground buster of some sort. Uh, no, fireworks only available, only allowed to be set off on Victoria Day, not the days leading up to uh, Victoria Day, as was in the past. It's the bylaw. It's Hamilton, the town that fun forgot. All right, let's move on. Uh, obviously, uh, lots of chatter today uh, regarding uh, economics and the Bank of Canada, which is being questioned uh, by some politicians, I guess, as to uh, its direction uh, during this course of inflation. Also, the banning of Huawei in Canada. Let's bring in Eric Cam, Professor of Macroeconomics, uh, Monetary Economics with the Toronto Metropolitan University, and with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. I have to admit, I laughed when I heard Tom play the uh, sparklers or whatever they're called. He's going to get us in trouble, man. I don't want to make anybody angry, and I'm not trying to suck up to the good listenership, but Hamilton, Ontario, Canada is the single most important city in Canada in my life. If there was no Hamilton, there'd be no me. So I don't want to make anybody upset, but am I the only person who hates fireworks and that annoying noise and the way it terrifies my pets? No, apparently you're not the only one, Eric, because they're all banging down uh, Councillor Tom Jackson's door and telling him to shut it off. So, yeah, no, you're not the only one, Eric, that's for sure. All right, uh, let's move on. First of all, before we get into the Bank of Canada and, and them being everybody's favorite punching bag right now, uh, what is your thought on Canada uh, finally ba- uh, banning the Huawei network uh, from uh, the 5G network from uh, Huawei? Well, there's your second favorite punching bag, and I guess I'm not surprised. Maybe I'm only surprised in how long it took. I think this is far more political than it is economic, and I don't think that that's a stretch. I don't think this is going to have wide-ranging economic implications. Um, there are, albeit not enough, telecommunications companies. There's still a few. And if they don't come in, then somebody else will take up the slack. And in terms of the trillions and trillions of dollars that is high-speed internet and wireless phones, I don't think this is going to make a tremendous amount of difference. This is, to me, far more a political statement of you know how much is enough when you have political adversaries 
like this. But if you're looking for the you know far-reaching economic implications of this, the answer is not much. Does this stimulate Canadian technology? Well, sure, it'll stimulate Canadian technology, you know, in a sense by definition, because there's always a substitution effect when you take away one and it brings in the other. But I, I unfortunately think Canada will follow suit in so many things that Canada does, which is drop the ball and miss the opportunities. I mean, we have issues to do with natural gas and gasoline and pipelines and energy where we should be picking up the proverbial football and increasing our output and doing things better. But for some reason, this country seems to thrive sometimes in missing opportunities. So do I think it'll help? Sure. Uh, it'll at least raise the dialogue. But do I see us all of a sudden as becoming the world leader in telecommunications because of this? Well, no. Uh, you, you brought up something in that being energy, and it seems everybody is screaming about the energy prices in Canada except for the Prime Minister. Is this going to change policy in any way? Because this seems like it's going to be a long, certainly a midterm problem. Well, not with this gang. I mean, you know, he is the leader, the, the Prime Minister of the gang who can't shoot straight. And I think that that's probably where we're going to get to with this conversation about the Bank of Canada. The government tends to be a little bit, uh, not just tone deaf, but deaf. And Roy Green, I'm sure you've heard of him. He asked me the other day, what would you, yeah, I know. What would you do if you were the prime minister and you got to make one or two decisions? And the answer would be easy. I would scrap the carbon tax and I put the whole green initiative on hold. It's the wrong tax. It's the wrong policy at the wrong time. I'm all about making people's lives better. The only way to do that that I can figure out is to make people's disposable incomes higher. This government seems to want to take the disposable income and see how low we can make it before we actually have people go into insolvency. Why do they do it? I don't know. I I don't even pretend to know how this group is thinking. How much influence does the government of the day have over the Bank of Canada? Well, that's an age-old question. Uh, And the answer is quite a bit. Um, And what it doesn't have in political pressure, although, I mean, it does because... That's where the Bank of Canada governor gets appointed. Um, if it, what it doesn't have in terms of pressure, it still has in terms of policy because you can't separate the two. I mean, it's like having warring cousins that live across the street, something I know about. And so you've got the Bank of Canada on one side of the street and they're the ones that implement policy, but they're subject to the whims of what's going on with the government and their so-called treasury department, although we don't really have one called that. And so as much as it's, it's, it's pressure, it's also that the government gets to do whatever the government wants, in a sense, and then it packages it up in a brown paper bag and drops it off on the doorstep of the Bank Canada and says, here, deal with it, which is why Pierre Polyev is making such a mistake, such a mistake when he comes out with his Well, I'm not going to say it, but he comes out with his yapper and says, we have to fire the Bank of Canada leader. Now, not just because I like Tiff Macklem and I consider him an acquaintance, but all that does is stir up negative feelings. It stirs up negativity Mm. at a time when we don't need any more. I know people are mad at the bank. The people say they dropped the ball. They're not doing their job. They're not living up to their mandate. But And I would like to be one of those people because it's fun to sit on the other side and throw things. But (laughs) the reality is, what do you want the Bank of Canada to do when they've been handed the load of garbage on that doorstep? The, the, The government gave them the worst economic conditions in 30 years. And they've said, now deal with it. And I think the Bank of Canada, believe it or not, is doing everything they can. They they can't. This is not a physics lab. 
This is not a physics lab, Scott. You can't pull a lever and have things happen in a vacuum. It's going to take time. It's going to be painful. But if anyone thinks out there, like Mr. Polyev, that the Bank of Canada is run full of idiots and they don't know what they're doing, they're kidding themselves, but they can't do it overnight. Is he using the Bank of Canada as a scapegoat for the ruling party's politics? 100%. Like I say, they're an easy target right now because if you go to their webpage, it says we're going to keep inflation at 2 to 3%. And right now it's at about 7%. And they Mm. talk about interest rates. And right now the real return on interest rates is negative. So, you know, it's really, they're a very easy target right now. But I would argue it's not fair. It's not really deserved. And you've got to give the bank time to do its job. And when you have somebody who's not even in power screaming at the top of the mountain, well, here's who to blame. Here's who to look at. That's just bait and switch. And frankly, I'm getting tired of it. Uh, Should they have acted earlier, the Bank of Canada? Probably, but they probably also should have been in better communication with a government that printed so much money. You know, about 70% of the money ever printed in this country has been printed in the last two years. Hmm. How do you want the Bank of Canada to absorb that? We talk about accommodating monetary policy. Well, yeah, they can bring in accommodating monetary policy. To the likes of which, though, Scott, they have never had to understand. They've never been so saddled with supply shortages and then this massive influx of liquidity. So you have, as my grandfather used to say, too much money chasing too few goods. I'm asking the people to be to be calm and listen to reason and not political rhetoric. The Bank of Canada will do its job, but it does not operate in a vacuum. They can't pull an imaginary lever and it's going to take time. Eric Cam with us, Professor of Macroeconomics, Monetary Economics with Toronto Metropolitan University. As always, Eric, thanks so much for the time. Be well. It's an honor. Stay healthy, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've certainly been following what's been going on with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I believe in about now day 85. Uh, last week, we were talking about McDonald's pulling out of Russia after like 31, 32 years ago, making a big to-do about opening the first one in Moscow. Now McDonald's out selling everything. Now French car maker Renault has a parting deal with the Russian government. And what does that all mean for them moving forward? Let's bring in Louis Siegelbaum, professor of history at Michigan State University, author of Soviet State and Society Between Revolutions and Cars and Comrades, and is with us now. Louis, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. Yes, I am. So what has happened here with French automaker Renault and their pulling out of Russia or selling their operation there? Renault has been under some pressure uh, internationally. Uh, It's actually one of the last of the car companies with investments in Russia to announce that it is pulling out. Uh, And uh, it uh, has had uh, two um, uh, enterprises, uh, one the largest car manufacturing facility in Russia, uh, located on the Volga River town of Tolyati, uh, and the other um, a venture in, in Moscow. Uh, the one on uh, the Volga um, is uh, Avtovaz, a producer of the uh, biggest selling car in, in Russia, which is the Lada. Hmm. And uh, Renault has had uh, something in the order of uh, 68% uh, ownership of that facility. And uh, that's, so that's the, big, that's the big announcement that it is um, 
selling it for um, a grand total of uh, one, I forget now whether it's one dollar or one ruble, Mm-hmm. To a uh, to a Russian uh, scientific research institute based in Moscow called NAMI, um, with the uh, option of coming back in after six years, hmm. by which time they're hoping things will have settled down or uh, the war will. Have- what, what are your thoughts on what's happened here, Lewis? Is th- is this a win for anybody here? How does Russia interpret this? I think Russia has uh, adjusted to uh, the reality of uh, the war having serious consequences when it comes to relations with Western firms. Uh, and um, the, uh, the expectation is that production will continue uninterrupted. Uh, so in a sense, I think this is, uh, this is regarded as good news uh, for, for Russians. The one, the, the one in Moscow is even more interesting in that uh, they were producing a, a, a Renault car, but um, the city of Moscow has decided to take over that facility to keep it running and has announced that it's going to uh, rebrand the car as the Moskvich, um, mm. which means Muscovite in Russian. And that also is the name of an old Soviet brand uh, going back to uh, the 30s based on a Ford prototype uh, that um, continued right up until about the millennium. So uh, Renault letting this go for like a ruble, but they've got the option of getting back in without uh, within six years. Is that obviously their hope for? We're going to take a bath now, and then hopefully later this will, will, will work itself out. Uh, well, that's what I'm assuming. I have no... Uh, I have no inside information as far as Renault is concerned. What does this mean for, uh, how do those in Russia interpret this? Because again, we've seen McDonald's leave, other companies, now we're seeing uh, Renault cash out. Uh, How do citizens of Russia interpret this? Well, sadly, it seems this plays into the narrative that's being pushed um, on Russian media, which is uh, that uh, these companies are being pressured by uh, Western governments that have it in for Russia, uh, that uh, are trying to uh, exert undue pressure. And uh, so this plays into the the, the patriotic narrative of, you know, we'll tough it out and uh, show what we're made of and, um, you know, Sacrifices may may be necessary, but it's all for the cause. Uh, Is Ukraine worth it? Not no disrespect to the great people of Ukraine, of course, but he's he's moved in as an invasion. And look at the domino effect here. Right. Uh, So there are these you know terrible ironies, uh, such as that one of the justifications supposedly was that um, you know nato was getting too close and uh, threatening russia and then lo and behold after several months of of uh, war in ukraine uh, uh, finland and sweden announced that they want to join nato mm. and, um but uh is ukraine worth it well uh the other the other justification has to do with eastern ukraine and it's russian speaking and you know, generally Russian culturally disposed population, uh, which um, Putin uh, now wants to um, have absorbed within 
Mother Russia or the Russian world, as uh, he, he terms it. Do you see Renault getting back into Russia? I wouldn't uh, be surprised if they did. Um, the, the, the history of Western car companies uh, getting into Russia, um, which began in the 90s, well, even, even much earlier in Soviet times, providing models and prototypes and such like. Indeed, the Avtovaz company, Vaz in Soviet times, um, owed its existence to a, a big deal in the 60s with Fiat, um, you know, it's it, it, there many American and Japanese and, and European car companies uh, have done business uh, with all kinds of regimes, whether Soviet or post-Soviet, Yeltsin and, and, uh, and Putin. Um, so, sure, I can see that happening in the future. Louis Siegelbaum with us, professor of history at Michigan State University. Renault and a parting deal with the Russian government as they sell their uh, facilities to uh, Russia for a ruble and hope they can get back in in the next six years. Louis, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We're obviously in the midst of a provincial election campaign. Uh, the uh, the advance polls are already open. And I haven't got my voting card yet, though. How do you vote in an advance poll if you don't get your voting card? I don't even know where the heck to go. Uh, anyway, I checked the mail today. No voting card. The advance polls, I'm told, are open. June 2nd is the election. And, of course, we find out the other day that uh, Green Party leader Mike Schreiner and NDP leader Andrea Horvath have tested positive for COVID. Man, like, does it you talk about a stick in the spokes. Does it get any worse than that in the middle of an election campaign and, you know, somehow you pick up COVID, which, you know, who hasn't had COVID at this point? Uh, but, man, it throws a stick in the spokes of an election campaign. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Henry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I'm well, and I haven't had COVID. You haven't. You're about the only one I know that hasn't had it, Henry, but good for you. Uh, good good for you. All right. So, you know, I, I can't imagine anything worse than this. Um, well, I'm sure there is lots worse, but uh, that being said, it doesn't help. How do you how do you adjust with this? Can you do it virtually and still make the same ground? Well, I mean, it, it's important probably for the morale of the uh, people who are working for a candidate and the candidate themselves. But I think in this period, it's going to be the ads on uh, television and radio. Uh, mm. I think those are the they they tend to be pretty pretty important in this stage. So as long as you you've got the money for the ads and you've got good ads at this point, it shouldn't be too bad a problem. But obviously, you don't want to be put out of action. Uh, obviously, uh, so far the the premier is out in front. Does this change anything? Uh, does it set them back in any way in trying to make up any of that ground? Uh, well, the the I mean, well, in terms of uh, Ford and the numbers on him, he's gone up a little bit. Uh, I'm I still think he's in a situation where a majority is, you know, touch and go. So it's not, uh, you know, it, it's got to be a nervous time for him because he's, uh, you know, I don't think he it'd be a problem. I probably will have trouble support, you know, carrying on with the minority. But uh, yeah, so but he he's he's certainly in the lead. But you know, he's he's down about three or four percent from what he did. Four, you know, four years ago, and that can that you can lose a lot of, you know, in certain situations, you can lose a lot of seats by being down three or four percent from what you did the last time. So, 
yeah, he's got to be a little worried there, although he's, there was a little bit of uptick, uptick with him uh, this week, but he's been bouncing up and down. Um, the uh, the NDP gone up a little bit. I think the, the, the person who's basically has been hurt this week, I think, has been the liberals and Del Duca. And that, uh, the, the debate is something people are all talking about. What, in fact, it had, did it have any impact? I, I guess I was surprised. I thought Duduka would get a, a, some kind of bounce. He had a very complex program. It looked like he had done his homework. He laid out a lot of stuff. But, you know, some people like some of the things he had in there, but the same people would say there's other stuff I don't like. And then uh, I think what also happened, I hear, we've been hearing more and more this week, a lot of people saying, well, I just can't connect with this guy. I just don't mm. feel like I enthusiastic about him in any way he just sort of leaves me sort of blah you know the, and the he, fact that he was kathleen Wynne's transportation minister and minister of economic development does that drag him down yeah well that's certainly some of the stuff i mean i think a big thing he couldn't win his own constituency last time four years ago i just think that's kind of dangerous to make a party leader of somebody who couldn't even win his own seat last time i, re- I recognize they lost a lot of seats but i think you know, he's got so many, and he says only two candidates out of 124 candidates who actually won their seat last time. Hmm. Boy, that, that means your, your, your um, resources are spread very thin throughout the, pre, um, the province. The general talk is that, and I think most people would agree with this who's paid attention to it or have to know, is that essentially the liberals have less money than the NDP or the conservatives for this last, you know, last two-week boost. So, well, you got to feel that, you know, they may be running, the liberals are sort of, you know, blah and sort of running out of steam at this point. And uh, they have, they, the, uh, the, the difference between the NDP and the uh, liberals this week has really tightened up. The liberals are still a little bit ahead, but they, they used to have a bigger lead over the NDP a week or two ago. Henry, I'm absolutely fascinated, and I love your I, I love your thoughts on this. That you know, after 20 years of literally not building anything, or or you know, stalling with the uh, you know urban land uh, urban fill in uh, and the nimbyism there, and the lack of uh, uh, a building outside of, of areas and urban sprawl and such. Now we have the three major political parties: the NDP, the Liberals, and the Conservatives all talking about building 1.5 million homes in the next 10 years. I find that absolutely astounding because it's the first time I've ever seen all three political parties agree on anything other than, you know, COVID-related uh, such. And, and, and this is after 20 years of not doing anything. Now every, all of a sudden everybody wants to build. Yeah, it, well, sometimes, I mean, there becomes consensus. Uh, you know, people, the, the people who are in politics, no matter what party and, and, the, you know, and all sort of leaders in our province, if they decide some issue is unimportant, well, they all say, well, it must be unimportant. And then suddenly what happens is that suddenly it is mm. important and they've all yeah. neglected it. But it's like they're like oftentimes all the party leaders together and all, all of our leaders uh, in the province are something like a, a herd of buffalo or something. They go, they run this way and then they run that way. And they yeah. oftentimes it's all groupthink. They all have to think alike, you know, if you... They're always worried about being too different from everybody else, and because they just see, well, the people expect me to be, you know, to to, to be on the same wavelength in terms of the issues or the, what issues are important with everybody else. And so, yeah, that's what happens. And and I mean, I just think, I mean, there were certainly some people who were saying, hey, this is going to be a problem, but they were never listened to. 
it just it just never became a, a mainstream uh, concern mm. by all our leaders. And now all of a sudden they find, hey, people can't get you know can't get proper housing. And it's, yeah, you got to wonder why they didn't do this like five, ten, twenty years ago. It's it's confusing. All right, Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about the ongoing election campaign. Henry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Oh, same to you, Scott. Bye bye. <laughs> calls in regard to the Canadian ban of Huawei uh, into the 5G system. He finally making that decision uh, about this time yesterday, a little uh, late afternoon yesterday, and many concerned and wondering why now. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Gordon Holden is with us, Director Emeritus uh, China Institute and Professor of Political Science with the University of Alberta, and with us now. Gordon, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Before we get to the fallout of China and the banning of 5G, I, I want to go back to a, uh, a National Post article from December of 2021. Uh, Melanie Jolie parrots Beijing lie about the two Michaels being on bail. Uh, the Liberal Foreign Minister, Affairs Minister provides a gift to Chinese propagandists, uh, then goes on to say when asked about the two Michaels and such, uh, she says, of course, the two Michaels are on bail, according to uh, the criminal law in China, and so we want to make sure we work that out with the Chinese government. This was after echoing that this was they were not subject to a ruthless kidnapping, but to a fair and just legal system. Uh, my question to you is, was do we know anything about bail, and why have we not heard from the two Michaels uh, since their release? Two questions, and they're, neither is really super easy to answer. Um, China doesn't really work on a bail system per se. Uh, they were released, by my understanding, and by the Chinese public statements, uh, on, on, on compassionate medical grounds. In other words, with the fiction that they were um, in particular ill health, although I'm sure they were in ill health given the, the terms of their confinement. Um, however, and it may well be on paper, the expectation uh, on paper of the Chinese that they would return uh, for their trial um, uh, for legal proceedings in China. But I mean, neither the Chinese nor the Canadian side, nor certainly the two Michaels ever, in my view, had any uh, any intimation or suspicion or expectation, probably the best word, that they would return. They're out um, and they're done. Now, obviously, they're not going to go back. That would not be wise. But I, I, the word bail is, I think, a bit misleading. I think, uh, in effect, a, a legal process that was cut off by the Chinese decision to um, and to um, allow them out on medical compassionate grounds. Uh, is this the minister treating China with kid gloves, and why the change now with the announcement on Huawei? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I I wasn't privy to the discussions at the last few days or weeks before the simul virtually simultaneous release of Meng Wanzhou and, and the two Michaels. There's obviously there's a lot of coordination. I noticed the airplane that went to fetch um, uh, Meng Wanzhou had the director general in the foreign ministry of the government of China uh, present on the aircraft. Um, Canadians obviously were expecting, had sent an aircraft in advance. There perhaps at that point was a, a, a mutual desire not to mess things up at the last minute. The question as to why we haven't heard from them is an intriguing one. Uh, it's hard to imagine that China could expect to enforce some sort of don't talk about this thing or that Canada could do the same thing either. There's a few, a few possibilities. One might be they're writing a book. I don't know. It also could be that they 
may feel somehow that if they go into great detail of it, they may uh, complaining about it and detailing what they went through, that it might somehow anger the Chinese who might take someone else. I find it unusual that neither one of them has has made any comments whatsoever. We know that they're uh, they're with with family. Um, we've seen some photos about that, but uh, without public comment. Uh, uh, I don't think that will last. I think eventually the story will be told in detail. We know most of it, but they'll be able to fill in the blanks. Do you think they've been told by government or what have you? And of course, we can never know this. We're just speculating to just keep quiet on this. Don't say anything. You're out. Be lucky and move on. It's possible. And the, one of the reasons behind that might be if we re, if we face a similar situation in the future, our Canadians are detained in China, which to me is is likely at some point. Um, if the Chinese feel that the person is going to be a walking, talking um, ad against China um, with high-profile uh, media presence, they might think twice about releasing the next person. But that's purely speculation on my part. I don't know. But the fact that neither one has spoken tells me that there is some conscious decision. It hasn't been that they're just watching watching videos or 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 Netflix, they're they're either writing their memoirs, but they're also not speaking to the media, neither one of them, neither is Mungo and Joe for that matter. So I'm thinking that they are um, uh, they are perhaps under some self imposed or suggested uh, guidance by government. Is cl- is clarity and transparency needed for the rest of us, for Canadians, or is it just, you know, it's none of your business, move on? Well, it's certainly our business. It goes beyond the situation mm-hmm. of those two and other Canadians that might be going in China or living in China. We've got a third of a million living in you know, within the People's Republic of China now um, would probably see, like to know. Uh, what I can't second guess is if there is indeed an advice was given to them, uh, don't trumpet this because the next person that's stuck, and don't forget we have still have others. We've got Stellenberg on, on death row and we've got uh, Jalil out in Xinjiang, where he's been for two decades, uh, the sense might be that the more that people get out, talk about it in negative terms, why wouldn't they, uh, that it may make the release of others difficult. I'm not defending that. I'm just speculating because I truly don't know. And it is puzzling. Uh, Obviously, Canada finally uh, banning Huawei from the 5G system years after everybody else. Some are talking about retaliation. What do you think that could be? Are Canadians in uh, China, are they in danger in any way now? I don't think the situation has changed vis-a-vis Canadians in China. There's almost nobody visiting. I mean, you can't get into even Mm -hmm. Hong Kong without quarantine in a hotel in China. You're looking at three weeks if you can get a visa, which is not necessarily likely. Um, but for those who are there, I don't think they're necessarily at any worse situation, probably slightly better with the release of Meng Wanzhou. Uh, but, uh, but we can't know. I don't think that the two Michaels worked out very well for China. Uh, I did notice that after detention of those two, right after Madame Meng was detained, they didn't keep doing the same thing. Uh, I think they, they mm. may have been somebody in the Communist Party said to the leadership, let's grab a couple, and I'm sure they'll quickly release Man among that didn't work. They didn't keep grabbing others. Um, they could do that any time. My advice is always to people who do go to China. I go there myself. Be very careful about observing local laws. That won't guarantee you. It didn't help those two, but generally will help avoid you getting swept up. It's good advice anywhere for that matter. What about retaliation for banning Huawei? 
you're asking really tough questions and good questions, Scott. And, uh, <laughs> and this one, my crystal ball on China is always hazy. Um, but here's my reading of the situation. I've been talking with um, Chinese officials in Beijing this week um, uh, as part of a dialogue we have with them on a regular basis. And my impression from that conversation, mind you, this is pre the Huawei, uh, was that China's taken the decision once Meng was out to try and restore some level of normality in the relationship. I don't think either they or we are in the illusion we're going back to 2017 or pre-detention of the Michaels. I think the erosion of trust has been too great. But I think given that we're at the bottom of a very deep well uh, that's been dug over the last three years, uh, it's not impossible. There could be some improvement. The trade's doing reasonably well. Trade's up last year uh, in 2021. Maybe up again this year, although the Chinese economy is slowing. I would be surprised to see a, a quick or hard retaliation. I did notice a foreign ministry spokesperson said that China will take a very careful and thorough, I'm paraphrasing here, examination of the Canadian decision. They criticize it, of course, and, and they, will move, they will make sure they protect Chinese trade interests. But I, I would be surprised to see a quick or significant retaliation, maybe down the road um, when they have a particular reason to do it. And they often don't even tell us on canola. They never really yeah. fully owned up the fact that that canola mm -hmm. decision, which was just lifted on the two firms was related to, um, uh, was related to the uh, detention of Meng Wanzhou. You just, you're left to figure it out yourself. Not mm -hmm. that there was any doubt. Gordon Holden with us, Director Emeritus of the China Institute, Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta, talking about Canada ban uh, banning the uh, uh, banning Huawei from our 5G system. Gordon, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you so much, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. If you're heading out on the roads and if you can afford to fill the tank and get out there, uh, we've got a friendly reminder from Sergeant Kerry Schmidt, Media Relations, Highway Safety Division, Ontario Provincial Police. He is with us now. Kerry, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, thanks for having me. What a way to kick off the weekend. So uh, what's it like out there? Is, are you already seeing uh, a lot of traffic on the road? Obviously Friday and, uh, you know, a, uh, a rush hour as well. But what is it looking like out there? We saw early birds uh, going yesterday. I was up on the 400 uh, going north uh, towards Muskoka at 6 o'clock in the morning, and it was already lined up with boats and trailers and kids and families all all over the place uh, heading north. And now I'm actually up on the 400 as well. Uh, it's getting it's getting tight. We had some crashes up on the 400 through Barrie. Uh, traffic is very, very slow. So if you are planning on getting uh, north, going north, or any other direction, you know, use your <laughs> driving app, maybe your Waze or, or Google, and uh, find your, your best routes. But again, you're not going to find uh, wide open roads. It's going to be a slow drive. So just make sure you got your patience. All right, Kerry, we heard you earlier on talking on the air about uh, loads and securing your loads. And we all know, you know, it's important to be safe and, and not be distracted and, and no booze or anything of that. Uh, but, yeah. you know, here's something that we often forget about, especially with people taking stuff in trailers and what have you, because you always seem to see stuff lying, lying along the side of the road that's flown out of somebody's load. So talk again about the importance of securing everything. Do you know what? People swerve it out of the way because something is on there, in their path to travel. I saw a ladder uh, line on Highway 407, and then I saw a full boat trailer uh, off on the side with a completely destroyed wee rubber tire. Uh, obviously, it had been sitting in the sun for or in the, in the UV for a little too long. Driver took it out, 
uh, thinking he'd make it to his destination, and uh, lo and behold, he's on the side of the road looking for a spare. So, you know, make sure your equipment is in good shape. Make sure you have repair parts with you. If you're going out, check your tire pressures, check your bearings, make sure there's grease in all of them, make sure your lights are working, and you've got your tie-down straps for your uh, picnic table, your barbecue, your lawn chairs, and, and coolers, and life jackets. Cause that's the stuff we see flying all over the place. It's like a yard sale on the side of the, of the shoulder of these highways. You know, you also bring up a very valid point about tires. I remember my parents had a house trailer way back when, and they used to replace the tires before they even wore out because of the age. And as you yep. said, they're old. They You don't realize they've been sitting around for 10 years. Then you get them out on the highway at high temperatures, and out they go. Absolutely. You know, just because the tread depth is still uh, sufficient doesn't mean the rubber it hasn't completely deteriorated. And as soon as you get some pressure, and especially when the tire pressures are uh, insufficient, you're going to get a lot of extra flexing. That's going to cause a lot of heat, and your tires are going to you know, just delaminate and uh, disintegrate you know, as soon as you hit the roads or within a very short distance. And that's not the way to kick off uh, the start of summer here, is it? All right, so give us some tips as we're heading out this weekend. Obviously, the first one is uh, make sure your load is packed and pack your patience. What else do you have for us? Well, do you know what? Wear your life jacket. Wear your seatbelt. Uh, yeah. You know, when we look at our stats, uh, put down that phone. Uh, a 78% increase in uh, distracted or inattentive related fatal collisions. 107 people have died already this year uh, in road collisions. And I'll tell you, last year, 2021, during the Victoria Day long weekend, we had four people lose their lives, three of them on the roads, one of them in the water. And uh, let's not uh, have a repeat of last year. Uh, this is kind of the reset, right? We want to forget about 2019, 2020, 21, or whatever. Uh, this is this is our, our chance to uh, really set the bar going forward. And if you're drinking or you're, you're having some fun, uh, water on the water, beer on the pier. Uh, but if you're drinking at all, don't get behind the wheel of a vehicle or a boat or ATV. Uh, your your reaction times, your your cognitive ability is going to be reduced. You may think you're in tip-top shape, but uh, when something happens critically in front of you, you're not going to be able to respond. And uh, we see that we've seen that already today. We had a rollover on the 400. Uh, a person was trapped in their vehicle, going too fast, probably not paying attention. Sudden slowdown, uh, swerve out of the way, into the ditch, through the fence, and on her roof. So, you know, what a mess. So let's uh, let's do our part. Let's share the road. You know, keep the left lane open for passing, the right side for driving. Uh, use your mirrors when there's someone behind you. Have some courtesy. Um, you know, people think they can control the rate of speed. If they're going 120, that's good enough for everybody else. And if someone comes up behind you going 125 and now they're frustrated, that's when we get road rage. Uh, and just look at the violence we've seen in, in our communities over the last couple of weeks with uh, carjackings and road mm. rage and, and just all kinds of issues. We need to just take a deep breath, reset, and uh, you know, don't get hot under the collar when you're going down the road. Sergeant Kerry Schmidt with us, Media Relations, Highway Safety Division, Ontario Provincial Police, out on the road now, reminding you to play safe this weekend. Kerry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well, be safe. Thank you. You too. Have a great weekend. Stay dry and uh, enjoy your summer. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer. For the last word. You know, it's a real shame about those bylaws being in place because I've got enough fireworks in my garage to get put on one of those watch lists. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.